We're in week three of our series, Lessons from the Early Church. We're looking at stories from the book of Acts that are instructive for us in our present time. And so far, we've already seen some incredible things just in the first two chapters. In week one, we talked about the ascension of Jesus and how Jesus, after his resurrection, spends 40 days with his apostles, teaching them about the kingdom of God. He commissions them to this mission to go out and make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven to take his rightful place as king at the right hand of God the Father. Then we looked at Acts 2 and the the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the early church and how they receive power from on high and they're suddenly able to speak in all of these different languages. And the result of that is Peter preaching this incredible sermon, the very first Christian sermon in which 3,000 converts to Christianity are made. And so in that one moment, that one day you have 3,000 people joining the church all at once. It goes from this tiny little group of ragtag disciples of Jesus to a a full-on multiple thousand person church. And so the question that today's passage answers is, then what? What do all of these people do? They've been baptized. They've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what does the brand new baby church do with these people? And what we're going to see when we look at this very short but but incredibly famous and powerful passage is that there are things about it that look very ordinary, things about it that look almost unattainable to us. And then buried in there, when you study it deeply, is one single word that has become so kind of diluted and so weakened in the English language that we're prone to skip it entirely or barely even notice it. And yet, it's the word that actually is necessary to unlock the deeper lesson of this story. So let's dive in. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, And they, and the they here is referring to those 3,000 new converts, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is a beautiful picture. And as I said a minute ago, there's a sense in which it looks very ordinary. These are the things that the church has always done. But in another sense, it it also, the way that it's being executed by these first believers looks to us nearly unattainable. So let's walk through some of the kind of surface details that we see, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper. It says they devoted themselves to several things. The first of those things is the apostles' teaching. So they're gathering together and they're receiving teaching directly from the apostles who spent time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And the way that we do this in the modern church, and the way that the church has done this for all of Christian history after the death of those apostles, is via their written words that we have in the New Testament. So this is precisely why for the church, and for our church as one of those, dedication to the Bible is paramount. Because one of the things the church has always been about is devotion to the teaching of the apostles. And it's in this book that we find that. So right from the beginning, you have them devoting themselves to receiving that teaching from those who learn directly from the master Jesus himself. It also says that they're devoted to the breaking of bread. And there's debate as to whether this is about the communion, the Eucharistic meal, or just about meals that they were eating together. But either way, for our purposes, the point is the same. You see the church 
doing life together, living their lives together, sharing meals. They're in each other's homes. They're also, as it says later, meeting in the temple, but their lives are being lived together and they're sharing communal hospitality, eating together, sharing the table together. And then third, it says the prayers, that they're praying together. And I think a lot of the time for us, prayer is something that we think of as a kind of private individual act. But we see here for the early church, they are together collectively devoted to prayer. It's an inspiring thing and something that I think many of us as modern Christians miss out on. And then if you skip all the way down to the bottom of this section, this is very important, especially for the age we're in right now, it talks about how they were together with glad and generous hearts praising God. And so you have right here in the very beginning of Acts, the precedent being set for corporate worship, that together they praise God. And we'll talk more about this a little bit later, but over the last year, for many of us, it has become incredibly difficult to actually praise God together corporately with the body of believers. But you can see here, it is one of the few things that Luke found worthy of mentioning in the activity of the early church, that they together were praising God. So again, you look at kind of all of those things on the surface and you say, these are beautiful, but they're also, in an amazing way, the things that the church to this day is still all about. We are about prayer and the teaching of the apostles, which is found in the Bible. We're about living life together and eating together and sharing our, our lives with one another and about praising God. But the thing in this passage that's kind of the most astonishing and the most striking to us, especially as modern people and especially as Western people, is this. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, in our modern world, which is so individualistic and so achievement-driven, this is truly an astonishing way to describe a group of people. They're together. They have everything in common. And when there's a need, people are selling the things that they own in order to provide for those needs. And as you follow the story of Acts, one of the things that makes this characteristic of the early church even more impressive and even more amazing is that it's not a compulsory, hyper-structured thing you're seeing here. It's not like joining the church requires you to sell everything and put it all in one giant pile. This is something that's happening on a personal basis and on a voluntary basis. And the reason that we know it's voluntary um, is, interestingly, two chapters after this, you're going to find... Um, a darker, harsher story about a couple of characters named Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, who they claim to be doing this, to be selling their possessions and giving all of it to the church, but they're actually holding a portion back. And the text says that they're lying to both Peter and the apostles and also to God, to the Holy Spirit himself. And in the process of rebuking them for this, Peter says something amazing. He tells Ananias, while it remained unsold, did not it meaning his property, remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So he tells him, hey, this, this was your personal property. And even after you sold it, those funds, they were at your disposal. You could do whatever you wanted with them. And so that's what makes the crime so great. But it also sheds light on the way that this was happening in the church at this time. That, again, they're not under compulsion to do this, but their love and devotion to each other is so great that you get the sense that it's not even a question if there's a need. The only question is, well, what must be sold to meet that need? And that's incredible. It's awe-inspiring. And you can immediately start to think, man, if only the church were like this today. Keep that thought in your mind.
Now, when you imagine a community of people who are this dedicated to each other, who are this devoted to one another, that they're literally selling the things they own to care for one another, the word in the passage that kind of sheds the most light on, on how that's possible, the best way of understanding why they were willing to do this is hidden in a word that, as I said earlier, has become so diluted and so weakened in the English language that we've lost sight of what it means entirely. It's the most skippable word in the passage. In fact, it's so skippable that when I talked through all of the things that the apostles were, or that the early church was devoted to a second ago, I skipped this word entirely. And I would be willing to bet that most of you didn't notice that. The word I'm talking about is the word fellowship. Now, this word can mean different things to different people. Um, Particularly, though, if you grew up a Christian or if you've spent a lot of time in the evangelical church, chances are you think of fellowship as Christians hanging out with other Christians. The example that comes to mind immediately for me is that when I was a child growing up in the church, our church had something called a fellowship hall, very common among churches. And it was a large room with tables that was kind of adjacent to the main sanctuary in the church. And basically, it was the place where snacks were available after service, or if we hosted a wedding or a funeral or something like that. If there was time for people to hang out with each other, spend time together, perhaps eat together, the fellowship hall was where that happened. And that kind of encapsulates what we think of in the modern world as fellowship. Fellowship means Christians hanging out with other Christians. Now, I want to be really clear. There's nothing wrong with Christians hanging out with other Christians. It's a wonderful thing to spend time with one another, to be friendly with each other. It's just simply not what this word means. It's not even what this word means in English, as we're gonna see in a second, but it's definitely not what it means in its original context in Greek. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia, and it simply does not mean to hang out. Koinonia means at kind of a dictionary level, having a share in something, having a stake in something, participating with others. And so that's kind of the dictionary definition, and that hopefully is already kind of starting to expand your idea of what this word could mean. But as always, the best way to understand what a word means in biblical usage isn't to give a definition, but to actually look at the way that the biblical authors used it. So we're briefly going to look at three examples of Paul using this word in his letters that will hopefully unlock the deeper meaning of the word. And with it, I believe, the deep lesson and truth of this passage. So the first one comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul is talking here about um, an offering that was taken among the churches to provide for the needs of the struggling church in Jerusalem. And he's talking to the church at Corinth about an example set by another church. And this is what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now that phrase, taking part in, is the Greek word koinonia. Interestingly, the word favor is the Greek word charis, which means grace. And so he says they were begging us for the grace, for the gift of being able to have koinonia, participation in the accomplishment of this mission. So the church in Macedonia, who is poor, hears about the need in Jerusalem and hears that there is a collection being taken up to try to provide for that need. And they are begging Paul, allow us to have koinonia in this project. They want to join together to participate, to bring what they can to the table in order to meet that need. That's the first example. The second example comes in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. This is a very interesting one. He's talking to the church in Corinth about mistakes that the church is making with communion, with the eating of the kind of Eucharistic meal of the bread and the wine. And in, in the course of that argument, he ends up saying, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And as you've probably guessed, both of those words, participation, both times it's used, is actually the word koinonia. I want you to think about what a profound sense of connection and identification with that word koinonia means in this sense. He's telling them, when you drink the, the cup of blessing, the communion meal together, this is participation with the blood of Christ. This is participation in the body of Christ when you eat the bread. It's about, again, participation, as it says, but it's about this connection with, this deep, profound identification with that thing. So you have the example of the church in Macedonia wanting to participate in the accomplishment of mission. Here you have the early church needing to recognize that taking communion is in a sense this deep and powerful identification and joining together with Jesus. Let's look at the third example. This is to me the most powerful one. It comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And he's talking in this one about the relative worth of knowing Jesus compared to his earthly accomplishments. How much more significant it is to know Jesus than to have his earthly pedigree or his earthly accomplishments. And he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When he says share his sufferings, that is once again the word koinonia. Paul here says, my obedience to Jesus, my desire to follow him and to be joined with him is so strong that I am willing and able and in fact will even share in, participate in, put, take a stake in the very sufferings through which he is accomplishing his mission. He wants koinonia with the suffering of Jesus. It's amazing. And so that word for what the apostles and the early church devoted themselves to in Acts 2, that word fellowship, it's less about a fellowship hall and more like the fellowship of the ring. So if you think about the story of the Lord of the Rings, the first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring, and it's about the group of people that come together surrounding the mission of destroying the one ring. And you have these nine people who all join and they bring their different strengths and their different abilities. That's where you have that famous scene where they say, you have my sword, you have my bow, you have my axe. This is the true sense of what fellowship means, even in English. And it's much closer to the idea of koinonia. These are people who are joining themselves together, participating together for the accomplishment of a mission, bringing what they have to the table in order to see it through. It's about participation, about sharing, about family, about that deep connection, and all surrounding the sense of purpose and the sense of mission. 
And that's why this word is so important. Because when you imagine a group of 3,000 people joined together in the city of Jerusalem, sharing everything they have in common, being willing to meet the needs of everyone who's there, you have to understand that they saw themselves as this koinonia, this group joined together, intimately connected with one another. And here's the problem. There are some of us who, who praise God that has been our experience of church. And as a pastor, I've heard stories like this of people who will say things like, I, I wouldn't have survived certain times in my life if it hadn't been for the church. And people, you know, I don't want to paint an overly bleak picture. People do get their needs met by the church regularly, by their brothers and sisters. But for many of us, when we read Acts 2.42 and following, and especially when we consider the idea of the koinonia of the saints in this situation, the first question a cynical person might ask or a person who's been hurt by the church might ask is, well, why on earth then does the church not look like this anymore? How come I've been hurt by the church? Or how come the church doesn't even seem to know what I need, much less able to meet my needs? How come I, go, I just go there and I don't even necessarily know anyone, much less have this deep sense of connection? If this is what the church is supposed to look like, maybe every church I've ever seen is a fake church. Maybe they shouldn't even be called churches because they don't look anything like what I see in Acts 2. And that's a natural response. A lot of people have been very disillusioned about the church and have been brought to the point of, of doubting, man, is there even such a thing as a real church? Because I haven't found one that looks like Acts 2. And to bring some clarity to this idea and to hopefully broaden our understanding of what the church really is, I want to introduce you to another ancient church, the church that we actually just read two parts of Paul's letters to the church in a city called Corinth. Now, Paul had a big stake in Corinth. He planted the church there. He wrote two very large letters there. So we actually know quite a bit about what's going on in Corinth during this time. And remember, this is the very beginning. This is in the first century. This is planted by Paul. This is a church that exists simultaneous with that church in Acts. Just, it's planted very shortly after. And this church is messed up. I mean, the number of problems that you see in the church in Corinth, reading between the lines and just reading directly the rebukes from Paul are unbelievable. I mean, they are broken and dysfunctional beyond belief. You think you've experienced a bad church in your life. You've never seen anything like this. Let me tell you just a few of the things that we learn about the church in Corinth. One of the things right out of the gate that Paul addresses is that they have divided up into different competing factions based on who has baptized who. So there's people who say, well, I was baptized by Paul. So this is kind of my group. And other people who say, well, I was baptized by Apollos, so this is part of my group. Now, for some of you, especially over the last year, this already might sound a little bit familiar. But Paul addresses that you're dividing over things that, that are not of central importance. Worse than that, there's evidence that they're bringing each other to court. They're having lawsuits with one another. And Paul has the need to tell them, you guys are brothers in Christ. Can't you settle this in the church? You're taking each other to court. Worse than that, even, there's a story of incest happening within this church that is not only being overlooked in some sense it's not clear exactly how the church in Corinth seems to be proud of it there's a guy there who has an intimate relationship with his stepmother his father's wife and the church is not only tolerating it they're celebrating this this horrible sin that's happening in their community and finally and depending on how you're wired this might be the one that bothers you the most we just read a second ago from a section where Paul's talking to them about the communion meal and the reason that he's rebuking them is because the way they're eating the communion meal involves some people arriving early and stuffing themselves with food and wine to the point that they're getting drunk 
while other people who are hungry, who need the meal for sustenance, are arriving and have nothing left to eat. So you can imagine the divisions within this church are, are horrible. There's people who are going hungry while other people are drunk at the communion meal. So you hear about this stuff and, and, and more that's going on in Corinth and you go, well, surely this must be a false church. I mean, you can't call something where this kind of horrible stuff is going on an actual church, can you? Listen to the first words of Paul in his letter to this church. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the first three verses to the church that I just told you all that dirty laundry about. Paul starts his letter by calling them those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who have been set apart by God in Christ Jesus. He calls them those who call upon the name of our Lord. The same Lord that Paul calls his Lord is the Lord of the people in Corinth. And he calls them those who are called to be saints, who are called to be made holy in Jesus. Later on in the same chapter, he's going to call them the Greek adelphoi, brothers and sisters, the word that Paul reserves for fellow Christians. In other words, for Paul, the church in Corinth, messed up and broken and dysfunctional as it is, is absolutely a church. And thank God for that. I mean, this is, this is incredibly good news. Because if you're a Christian, you need to know that you, with all of your flaws and all of your brokenness and all of your dysfunction, by the virtue of the blood of Jesus, by the grace given through Jesus Christ for you, you are welcomed into a family of people called by God, saved by Jesus, with all of their strengths and weaknesses, with all of their dysfunctions and everything they have to offer, to come together in that koinonia that you saw in the Acts 2 church. So make no mistake, the church in Acts 2 is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of what the church should aspire to. And we should believe that this is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we should strive for this kind of unity. Those of us who have resources should absolutely be willing to sacrifice them for those who have need. This is a paradigm that we should be trying to follow. But we should also not be so quick to disqualify ourselves just because we fail to perfectly embody what we see in Acts 2. Because as we've just seen, Paul calls these people in Corinth brothers and sisters as well. So the church sets our sights on the vision of Acts 2. We strive to meet that. Some days we do well, some days we do poorly. But our performance in that way isn't what makes us a church. It's what Paul says here, called to be saints together with everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you, if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a broken but beautiful family that you are a part of. And you get to bring your brokenness and your dysfunction and your gifts and your talents together in koinonia, in true fellowship to bring everything to bear to accomplish the mission of God. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is this is not something that you choose to opt in or opt out on. If you're a Christian, you are automatically entered into that capital C church. And of course, your relationship with, with local manifestations of that church can change and can come and go and ebb and flow at different times, but make no mistake, you are called into koinonia with your brothers and sisters, with the church all around the world. 
It's what Jesus died to accomplish. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he's praying and he, he prays to God the Father and says, may they be one as you and I are one. God wants to see the church be as united with each other as the members of the Trinity are with each other. This is unimaginable. And so it's a very simple application point today, but one that I believe is very important, especially for the moment that we're in right now. Christians should be seeking that kind of koinonia, that kind of fellowship, that kind of deep connection, participation, that kind of sharing in, participation in the work of God together in and through Jesus. And for many of us, the last year has made that incredibly difficult. I mean, we are already an individualistic culture. And a year of being isolated from one another has magnified that beyond belief. I mean, if you're watching this right now, you are doing church in some sense alone. Now, it could be with your family. Praise God if that's the case. Um, and, and there's a sense in which you know that there are hundreds of other people also watching this and you are united with them. But you have to know, as thankful as we are to have the technology to accomplish this, this is not the design of how koinonia is supposed to work. And so as soon as it is within your power to do so, I want to urge you to seek that community, to seek that fellowship, to know that we are meant to be bonded with one another in a way that we simply can't accomplish by slipping in and out of the back of a church every couple of weeks on a Sunday morning. Seek real fellowship, real koinonia. Know that if you are a believer, if you are one who calls upon the name of Jesus, then you are part of a family. And it's not a perfect family, it's a flawed family. But man, we're not perfect either. We're all flawed as well. And so I want to just again invite you to see this next season of your life as a time to deepen the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in the church, to recognize Christianity as the team sport that it is and always has been, and to remind yourself that Jesus died to save you from your sins and to bring you into that new family, into that new people that he has created by his own blood. Let's pray together. Father, you know that that I am one of those who looks at the church in Acts and my inclination is, is towards cynicism, is to think, well, why don't we look like that? Why can't we seem to do that? And so I thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you've put in your word of, of how there were churches existing at the same time who were struggling to even eat communion in an equitable way, who were struggling to even get along with people just on the basis of who had baptized them. So thank you for reminding me that the church has always been struggling to meet the standard that we're called to. And that in spite of that, Lord, you use us, you call us your own, you call us your children, you call us your family. And pray that every Christian listening to this would know that if they call upon your name, they not only get Jesus as Lord and Savior, they get every other Christian as brother and sister. And I pray that we would take that more seriously in the coming days especially coming out of this long time of isolation, that we would see our need for community and fellowship, that we would pursue it, that we would bring our gifts and our brokenness to the table and watch you do what you always do, which is make something absolutely incredible out of them. We love you. We thank you for the gift of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.